0: It is an extremely rewarding thing to do. I have had a young kid from Halls Creek, which is even further out than Fitzroy Crossing, so it's probably about six hours from where I live, come up to me at an event. He's about seven years old at the time and he just said, Miss, I just want to thank you. Thank you for doing this. We don't get things like this. Things like this don't happen for us.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next, I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today I'm speaking with Kara Peak, a Yarrawu and Bunnabar woman who grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne, but now lives in the remote Kimberley region of Western Australia. Driven by a strong desire to help people, Kara actually started her career as a lawyer before deciding to follow a different path to become a social change innovator and entrepreneur. She has since set up two Indigenous-led organisations. One is a consultancy called the Cultural Intelligence Project, which she started with her sister. The other is a not-for-profit organisation called Saltwater Country, which aims to open up opportunities for Indigenous young people and communities in the Kimberley. I was intrigued to find out how Kara made the leap from lawyer to launching her own startups, how she juggles the many facets of her work, and what it meant to be the winner of this year's AgriFutures WA Rural Women's Award in recognition of her work with Saltwater Country. Here's my chat with Kara Peek. So, Kari, you have many strings in your bow when it comes to your career, which I'm very keen to talk about. But can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what life as a kid looked like for you?
0: Life as a kid for me uh, was growing up in a suburb called Dandenong in Melbourne, which is a really multicultural suburb, which was great for me because I'm a Yarubunaba woman from the Kimberley region in northwestern Australia, but I also, my mom is Aboriginal Chinese, my dad is Irish and um, growing up in a suburb where there was literally somebody from every country was amazing. And um, not not just because of the food, but <laughs> just because of oh, the, yes. <laughs> the, <laughs> the lived experience, the um, not really, you know, sticking out in a um, majority kind of population that may not be the same as yours. So it was a nice melting pot if you will and my mm. childhood mainly stemmed from um, my both my parents my mum's a nurse and my dad is a photographer by profession so there's the practical and the creative in the same in the same household uh, a family that um, you know did your classic kind of Australian road trips siblings wanting to kill each other in the back seat those types <laughs> of things um, which was which was quite fun but in Dandenong and in that part of Melbourne, there are a lot of people from different cultures trying to get a start in life as well. So it was Mm -hmm. a really inspiring place to be and a good learning place to really delve into just all different types of cultures, people, experiences, which I think was that along with my Indigenous heritage was the bedrock for my career and my life after that, and also a sense mm. of ambition that I wanted to get out of there and do other things see the world, etc um, yeah so it was a, it was a good childhood and
1: I've heard you describe yourself as a born advocate so where do you think that drive and interest came from?
0: Very early on, like I've always been an avid reader and so like as a child, literally probably early high schools, I was reading you know, books about Nelson Mandela and um, what was going on in South Africa and also had a keen interest in uh, the civil rights movement in the US and, of course, the Australian history as well and this real disconnect between what was taught in schools versus what I heard on the street or in my family and, and then obviously what has since come out more formally in terms of uh, the Australian experience for uh, First Nations Australians and I think also growing up in a you know working class suburb where people are extremely hard workers and are not always um, looked after by their employers and things like that Mm. so um, seeing those types of things and also having family members that are advocates in their own way both at a political and union level and and different things that it really inspired me to not only fight for my own rights and understand those but more importantly ensure that other people can understand theirs or at least are privy to them and then they can make the choice as to what what it is that they want to fight for so my thing Or something that drives me and something that really irks me is if people are belittled or uh, marginalized and those types of things, which I just think that there's absolutely no reason to do that. And Mm. I actually get this innate feeling when when I see that happening, that it's just like, no, I have to do something about it. And I may not be able to solve it, but what I can do is stand beside that person and either support them or... Um, argue on their behalf and and those types of things, whatever's appropriate, whatever it is that they want. Mm. If it's just a silent bystander while they speak their truth, then that's perfectly fine as well. So um, my, yeah. my parents would say that I don't get it from them, but I would say otherwise because I've seen both of them in action in different parts of their lives. And yeah, it definitely runs in the blood.
1: Well, you did go on to study law and psychology at the University of Melbourne, which is a degree that I'm sure would have set you up for a whole range of jobs. Where did you see your career heading at that point?
0: At that point, I actually started my psych degree when I was still in high school, um, just because I was interested in it and I, and I could get in. Right. And then I went on to, so that was at Monash and then I transferred uh, to Melbourne. And at that point, Firstly, psychology, people's brains, the way they think, the strategy, the agendas, the preconceived mindsets that they're unaware of just really fascinates me. And Mm. also then coming to understand those and how that influences decisions and then what role I can play in hopefully altering that for the greater good. And when I remember my first day at law school and they go around and say, you know, why are you here? What do you want to do? Et cetera was pretty much the only person in my class hopefully this was not every class but I was pretty much the only person in my class was like I want to help people and I think mm. this is the I think this is um, one way that I can do that and um, yeah that wasn't wasn't a very common response so I felt a little, uh, <laughs> a little bit like there's a lot of people whose parents were lawyers or they got the, the right score and it's one of yep. those co- coveted degrees, I suppose. But for me, the motivation was definitely the good fight and finding my way into a place where I could actually play a strong role in that.
1: Well, you did start your career as a lawyer, and I believe you are working primarily in native title law. So what was that experience like, and was being a lawyer what you thought it would be? <laughs>
0: So I actually started my legal career as a research associate and then judge's associate at the federal court. And then I went on to practice, obviously, as a solicitor. I was admitted as a solicitor in New South Wales and WA. And practicing as a lawyer, particularly in native title and in a remote area, can be quite challenging. Um, I was quite comfortable in that space because I don't fit well into any preconceived boxes. So working in a big city firm or even a mid-sized firm in, um, in urban areas wasn't really my thing. And I thought what was the best way that I could create the maximum impact in the least amount of time for not only my community but the broader Indigenous community in particular. So working as a solicitor, for me, when I kind of started out, there was a pretty big caseload essentially because I was running a number of native title claims in the Kimberley. And But the best thing about working in the Kimberley is that you can cut your teeth on things that you would never get a chance to in the big city because there's way too many people or whatever. So mm. in, in the Kimberley, I had thought – I suppose I'd thought <laughs> – I I thought law would be more interesting. I don't know if yeah. that's the right thing to say. <laughs> um, or exciting or, or something, um, obviously, because I'd also come, you know, from the federal court before that. So that's kind of the upper echelon of, you know, legal practice, albeit I was an associate to a judge. But on the ground, I found it was quite interesting that as, as important as the, you know, Western law was, of course mm. traditional law from an indigenous perspective was extremely important and then what i found also was that because i was somebody that my clients trusted that the broader community trusted that as a native title solicitor you often end up as a one stop shop for the community so on any given day you could be doing the law could be doing stakeholder engagement you could be a funeral director you could you know it Anything to do with the land and the community, people if they trust you, they will come to you, which is a testament to your integrity and your work ethic, but not necessarily mm. conducive to <laughs> moving cases along. Sometimes my biggest frustration with the law at that time was actually how long native title cases take, uh, particularly right. in it in if they head down the adversarial route to litigation. I was fortunate that a lot of my cases were in mediation but again they take a long time and and so the Mm. people that start those cases like the elders etc in the community a large number of them pass away by the time that that case is finished so some cases they can they can take 20 or 30 years and it sounds Mm. ridiculous but it is actually true Um, though they have progressed Uh, largely from you know the knowledge and and the motivation at the state and federal level depending on how contentious the piece of land is but we must remember that that land has a variety of interests in it outside of Mm. the first nations people and that's usually what that's usually what holds it up it's not the indigenous people being able to prove their connection it's every other interest so yeah, yeah. and sometimes
1: yeah. quite powerful interests I suppose oh,
0: def- definitely definitely
1: <laughs> and so I mean what did you enjoy about that time you obviously had some frustrations but were there some wins or moments that um that you look back on
0: with uh with happiness or joy <laughs> yes of course my my favorite my absolute favorite thing about being a solicitor or an even that's carried on to my current career is the people, the stakeholders, the community. As, as weird and wonderful as it is jumping from one role to another, that's also the benefit because it means that people trust you. They, they are willing to let you into their lives and to help them sort out whatever the dilemma is on the day. And I must say that working in First Nations communities, it doesn't matter if it's in Australia or I've worked with like say the San Carlos Apache in Arizona before and and other communities, the level of resilience and hope and humour that helps them Mm. deal with everything that they're going through is phenomenal and really, really uplifting because if we look back and, and consider all of the elements that could have resulted in very different outlook on life and in some communities, uh, you know, does manifest in intergenerational trauma. But the humour of First Nations people saves us, I think. It is just amazing mm-hmm. and there's a common language no matter where you are in the world as well and a common understanding. Also, being able to work as a solicitor in Native Title in particular and because of the workload, I... Feel that I learnt a lot more, uh, much much quicker than I would have in another setting, and I was given a, a lot of freedom, albeit with guidance. A lot of freedom to to run claims in a way that I felt worked best for the community. Obviously, still adhering to the legal process, and I still have you know lifelong friendships and connections to the people that I worked with and the people that I represented. So that's probably the strongest thing that's come out of that.
1: And so at what point did you decide that maybe being a lawyer wasn't for you after all?
0: I came came to the realisation probably largely out of the frustration with respect to the the length of time that these things take. uh, My specialty and my area of interest was in communications stakeholder engagement and uh fast tracking solutions for community as best I can so um you know obviously a few years down the track I decided to go back into stakeholder engagement um and I picked up a role at Argyle Diamond Mine in East Kimberley which I had worked for Rio before in different parts of the world but um with my, my focus had always been representing traditional owners or First Nations people inside the beast as much as outside of the beast. So at that particular right. moment, the traditional owners had negotiated an agreement with the company and then it was my job to ensure that that agreement was upheld from MD to shop floor and everybody in between and everybody to understand what their obligations were what they'd signed up for as employees or as a company. And sometimes mm-hmm. I, w- I was often asked, do you work for the company or do you work for the traditional <laughs> owners? Because it sounds like you work for the traditional owners. But in, in ensuring that all of that was upheld, including things like cultural awareness, business development, um, higher levels of Indigenous contracting, etc. cetera, I was ensuring that both parties upheld their end of the bargain, but that the Mirawong and Gidja people, whom were signatories of that agreement, you know, had the absolute best chance, at least as best as I could while I was there, to reap the benefits of the entire agreement, instead of, you know, some some companies only offer royalties or or whatever. But the traditional owner groups had negotiated a robust agreement, which it was my role to ensure that the company upheld for, you know, a variety of reasons, if nothing for a sense of integrity in the process. Um, So, yeah, Mm. so that was quite good. And after that, I definitely found that my niche was in this kind of code switching cross-cultural conversation, communication, engagement, and also listening to people in a way that I could then go on to create people-centred, place-based solutions that are relevant to the region and relevant to our people.
1: Well, as you said, you did move to the Kimberley, um, I guess it was more than a decade ago, so while you were still working as a lawyer and then you changed careers while you were there. But just for those who've never been to that part of Australia, can you paint a bit of a picture of what it's like and what you love about it?
0: Yeah, in the Kimberley is an absolutely striking landscape, Uh, a landscape full of contradictions like the soft turquoise water versus the almost harsh deep red iron ore rich cliffs and white sand. So if you can imagine those kind of colours together, that is the epitome of the Kimberley. But the Kimberley also, I have never found a sense of freedom like that, which I find in the Kimberley. And I've traveled, you know, I've traveled the globe, but there's definitely something to be said to being on your own country. So for Yara, my Yaru side, that's from Broome in the Kimberley, and um, the Bunaba is from Fitzroy Crossing, which is about four hours um, south of Broome. And so the Kimberley provides you with opportunities and relationships that you would never get anywhere else. Uh, a sense of freedom and accomplishment, and also innovation and ingenuity as well, because in many rural, regional and remote communities, you have to find different ways of achieving things in order to get the same or a better outcome. So you look at what you've got, who who can you can connect to, who can you bring in to achieve whatever it is, whether it be a project or a personal goal or, or whatever it might be. And the Kimberley definitely affords that. And uh, it's not not for want of its issues due to its history, but the level of resilience and hope of our people as well as the broader, you know, kind of tripler community um, is really mm. inspiring and, and definitely come together when needed. And the beauty of having such amazing beaches, for example, also is that you can get the space when you need it as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's such, I haven't been there myself, but having seen images of, you know, Cable Beach and all those sorts of areas, it uh, certainly looks very beautiful. I'm sure a lot of people love the idea of moving to a remote area, but, um, you know, they might think that it's challenging from a work perspective, but it sounds like it did also open up more opportunities for you in some ways.
0: Yeah, definitely. It opened up opportunities for me, but from a work perspective, it really just depends on what it is that you want to do. And if you want to do it badly enough, you'll just make it happen.
1: Mm. And so in 2014, you set up your own not-for-profit organisation called Saltwater Country. So can you tell us a bit about that and why you started it?
0: Saltwater Country is built off the strength and legacy of Kimberley Aboriginal stockmen and stockwomen. Many people don't understand or even know of the extent that indigenous people played a role in the development of Australia, in the development of the pastoral industry, um, that being like you know cattle, etc, and agriculture more broadly, and you know the labor and support that First First Nations and or indigenous people provided. and so, My family has been involved in that history and continues to work on some of the stations, et cetera, up here because the Kimberley, aside from its traditional context, is cattle country as well. So Mm. Saltwater Country was established to provide and build a rite of passage for Indigenous people in the Kimberley with the view to, if we're welcomed, to go and do it elsewhere in Australia. And in doing so, designing place-based, people-centred solutions with global reach that genuinely create a critical path to success for Indigenous people in the regions. And in doing so, an example of that is we run a large-scale rodeo camp draft and country music event, which we know our people will turn up to. They love. Mm -hmm. They love the fact that people like the people that are running it look like them. You know, from top yeah, to bottom, yeah. you have Indigenous people running the show, working the show, volunteering, competing, whatever it might be, performing, you know, if they play music or, or whatever. And for me, it was really important to develop a nonprofit that was culturally relevant to our people, regionally relevant in a broader sense, so everybody's welcome to come and get involved. But that also created a kind of volunteer to employment pathway so we can meet people where they're at in terms of their education, work experience, whatever it might be, provide them with experiential learning opportunities, so on the job learning and free form education, as well as certified education through our partners, and a pathway from you know, just putting their hand up to help out on the day at an event to carving off different areas of expertise that we can teach them. So we run a large scale event and we're also developing a training and development arm called Saltwater Academy, which is what my rural women's AgriFutures Rural Women's Award was for at the state level. And so our first first program we developed is called Saltwater Stories, where people learn film, photography, sound, lighting, and sculpture. They do that in either free form or certified workshops, depending on, you know, where they're at. Mm. They have the opportunity to exhibit or train in those skills at our small community events and our large-scale event under supervision, of course, and um, training supervision. Then they can have their own exhibition at the end of the year showcasing their works and produce a coffee table book partly as a portfolio for them and then also as evidence for us to show potential funders or supporters what is actually able to be achieved. But more importantly, the journey is about hands-on experiential learning for young people, intergenerational Mm. knowledge sharing um, through the conversations because, as you would know, um, any artist seeks their inspiration from different places Mm. So it's about those conversations with the elders, conversations with each other, people that think like them, look like them, et cetera, similar lived experience. And then to yeah. produce a creative outcome. That is just one area that we can then also use that for media and marketing. We can employ them later on to be the photographer for our event, mm. the videographer for our event. And this is just the first program.
1: Right. And so what? I mean, what were the challenges that you're trying to address with this? What are some of the challenges facing particularly Indigenous young people in your area?
0: So there's an extreme lack of opportunity and culturally intelligent and relevant training for people. There's kind of your stock Western-style classroom-based training. Some of the TAFEs in particular are getting better at that, with obviously TAFE is more hands-on than other types of training. But almost none of it is run by Indigenous people. And Mm. so there's barriers in communication and learning styles and a mutual understanding of lived experience where, you know, we know a lot of the kids that are training with us or with our partners through the programs, we know the ones that will turn up or turn up late and where we need to find them. And we can provide some of that support along with our partners like Galari Media uh, which is an Indigenous media company, and Aganya, which is another non-profit that is helping with the sculpture piece. But the Kimberley, and I would argue many rural and remote communities, uh, for want of high levels of funding anyway from anybody, they yeah. um, often have non-Indigenous non-profits, RTOs, et cetera, come in and impose what they think is correct Um, It may be a program that's worked somewhere else, but it's not relevant to our community. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, more importantly, the staff turnover in those types of organisations because they're not from your community um, is quite high and they'll move away. It doesn't mean that those individuals aren't trying to do the right thing while they're here. They probably are, but it has a different um, effect. Our saltwater country and organisations like ours are grassroots literally started with nothing, not $1, and have mm. gr- have grown from there through the support of the community. So there's a community buy-in. People turn up to what we're doing. Um, we've been able to attract a decent level of funds and support. And we've delivered outcomes. Last year was our first set of um, programs and clinics that we ran and some with quite clear career opportunities in the Pathways. And we engaged with 148 young people and a couple of oldies that jumped in as well, and <laughs> um, and those were 148 people that wouldn't have had those training opportunities in the way that it was delivered, and that's just in the first yeah. year. So hopefully it will grow from there.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I think as you say, I mean, obviously the funding is important as a not-for-profit, but it is that process that's equally important. I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that, you know, many the reason that a lot of initiatives don't work, as you say, is if they haven't come from the communities themselves. They're not being led by indigenous people themselves. Like that process is just as important.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um and you did mention that you were the winner of this year's AgriFutures WA Rural Women's Award. So congratulations on that. That's a wonderful recognition of the work that you do. Um and I understand that did include a $10,000 grant to further your work with Saltwater Academy. So what did that award mean to you and and what will the funding enable you to do?
0: Um I was I was surprised, of course, like you don't expect to win these things. Like um I and very much embedded in the work, and not necessarily the accolades. Uh, though the accolades most definitely are appreciated and are extremely helpful in terms of opening mm. doors, not only for myself but for what for the work that we do, and also for my people more broadly. Um, what was amazing is when it actually occurred, I got a bunch of messages from Kimberley people, just saying, con- like men and women, saying congratulations. It's amazing to get some really good news at this really tough time that we're all facing because we were in in the midst of um, the initial COVID crisis at the time and our economy had been already decimated because we're largely reliant on tourism up here, of course. So it was a real uplift for myself as well as everybody else because I hadn't realised the sheer number of supporters we actually have as Saltwater Country and therefore myself at through the work that we're doing. Um, Last year, we ran a thank you event for our people and I had to write out an invite list and it got to over 200 local stakeholders. Um, (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, these are the people that have contributed to the journey so far. And so when, when I won the award, that is a testament to their contribution as much as it is to my work in the space. And so the ten thousand dollars I, as part of my um, pitch for the award, was also that we are an unfunded nonprofit. So we have no reoccurring funding. We uh, we get grants here and there for particular projects or for our event, but we have no baseline, and it right. will take many many years for us to kick the tin in order to garner that baseline without the assistance from other people. So the ten thousand dollars is going towards a full business plan, financial modelling and impact measurement system so that we can show the work that we do, what it does and the impact it actually provides for our people. And last year I was awarded the Churchill Fellowship for Saltwater Country as well. Um, That travel, however, that research piece has been put on hold because that is predominantly based in Brazil, the US and Canada and a little, right. in, a little in Mexico. So um, there's an affinity with what Saltwater Country does with similar organisations and circuits and different things in those countries with First Nations right. and African-American people as well. They run similar things over there. And so I had hoped to <laughs> go over there, learn best practice, bring it back, but that's slightly delayed, but that is fine. And I guess if someone listening wanted to
1: support what you're doing in any way, is is there a way that people can get involved or like by attending one of your events, what would you recommend?
0: Absolutely. We've got supporters from across the country. So you can obviously, subject to being able to cross the hard border that's in WA (laughs) at the moment, (laughs) Um, if you're from within WA, you can most definitely travel to our event. Once that border is lifted, obviously everybody else is welcome to come across. And we also have volunteers and contributors from across the country. So our company secretary, because we're a company limited by guarantee, so still a non-profit, but our company secretary is Sydney-based. We Mm. have a a volunteer in Sydney who is actually an agricultural um, science grad but has had to step off the stations due to COVID. And he's based in Sydney and has offered to do things like uh, media marketing or help with grant writing whatever that might be so we have a whole if you can imagine any organization that you know the different skill sets that are required in there Mm. those those are the skill sets that we require at the moment however we run largely on volunteer power and that includes myself so the way to get in contact with us is obviously we are on social media, so Facebook, Insta and Twitter. We also um, have our website, uh, which is www.saltwatercountry.com.au that you can um, connect through to us and um, or just find our phone number on there and give us a call because we're consistently looking for assistance and it is an extremely rewarding thing to do. I have had a young kid from Halls Creek, which is even further out than Fitzroy Crossing, so it's probably about 6 hours from where I live, come up to me at an event, he's about 7 years old at the time and he waited patiently until I was available because you know you're running around like a headless chook. Um and he just said, "Miss, I just want to I just want to thank you. Thank you for doing this. We don't we don't get things like this. Things like this don't happen for us. Um, mm. And he had, I mean, he'd had a great day. He'd won a bunch of buckles and all different things. So he's, <laughs> he's, I'm sure he was running on a high. But it was, it's a safe, family-oriented um, initiative to to build outcomes for Indigenous people. And in his own way, he could see people that look like him doing it, people that look mm. like him achieving, and his fellow family members also taking part. And we've had other like really, really quietly spoken traditional men, um, Indigenous like um, ringers and, and whatnot, come up to me and just shake my hand and say, thanks, sis, I can't believe we are doing this. And they the community is using the word we, which is amazing for me because it means that people are seeing the opportunity that's available, but they're taking part in it and taking ownership in it. And if there's anybody out there that wants to support an Indigenous founded, led, controlled organisation that is not only delivering for our people, but delivering in the way that the Western system works from a economic and tourism perspective or business generation perspective, Saltwater Country is that organisation.
1: I wanted to come to the consultancy that you set up and run, you set up and run with your sister Adele. It's called the Cultural Intelligence Project. That's correct. Um so from my understanding, it does a range of different things, but ultimately it aims to change the narrative, I guess, around mm-hmm. how people see and engage with Indigenous Australians. Just to give us a bit of an understanding of the type of work you do, can you share, I guess, an example of a, a favorite initiative or project
0: you've worked on? Sure. So um we at the crux of it, we work to build the cultural intelligence of people and organisations that affect Indigenous people in some way, whether it is they come into their communities or maybe they want to sell a product to them, whatever it might be. And an example of probably one of my favourite projects is working with a carbon farming company that's based out of Sydney that has projects across the country. and. Not only have they signed up for our education piece around cultural intelligence and also a product that we're about to launch called Cultural IQ, but also they have taken the time to think about how they do business differently. And we have engaged with them in a couple of ways. We've provided face-to-face high-level training we have unpacked some of the ways that they do things like com- communication methods, etc. We have also worked with them in securing a- agreements with traditional owners. So, for example, you could have a pastoralist or a pastoral company that has a carbon project based on that land. Um, it may be a regeneration project, which is what it says it is, a regeneration of bushland or a savannah burning project, which is controlled burning, which of mm. course has ties into um, Indigenous practices as well. So we can facilitate and do facilitate relationships, agreements and support the traditional owners, the Indigenous people in that space, as well as the company, for the carbon farming company, the traditional owners and the pastoralists to come together with mutual benefit. The carbon farming company does not have to, by law, do that if there's no native title in in the space, um, but they choose mm. to do that. They choose to do it because they believe it's the right way to do it. And I agree. And so we tend to work with organizations like that because we can we can be quite picky as to who we, who we work with and what their motivations are. We're not saying that mm. you don't need to go on a journey, but you need to have the right motivation as well. So that's probably one of my favorite projects also because the people within that organization really the vast majority are already open to learning understanding mm. the white privilege that they many of them possess but not necessarily understanding the ramifications of that.
1: Right. And have you noticed I mean we've obviously had um Black Lives Matter movement and the anti-racism Protests and discussions going on. Have you noticed more organisations reaching out to you?
0: Yeah, I think um, we've had a number of people reach out to us, and it's about fleshing out why they're reaching out to us. Obviously, they mm. may they may have heard of our work, but for us, Black Lives Matter is not a trend. It's not a you know something that's trending on Twitter or whatever it is. It's our way of life, and I'm I'm okay with people. St- being at the beginning of that journey, but um, as, as I said before, the motivation is important to us and yeah. um, and the openness to learn and also um, the issue of, you know, kind of fragility around those conversations. So how open are you really to have a robust conversation that may actually challenge your cultural mindsets from wherever you may have come from?
1: And I guess what do you feel hopeful about? I mean, we do often hear some quite despairing statistics and stories, but, you know, the work you're doing obviously shows there's a lot of positive things happening as well. I mean, what what do you feel most hopeful about?
0: I just feel hopeful and I always feel hopeful about our people's sense of hope and resilience because without that we wouldn't have survived the 80,000 years that we've been here for. So um, and it, it only kind of reinforces our capability to achieve and to shine and that that light may be dimmed occasionally or what may seem perpetually but every time we survive and we kind of rise up so I think that hopefully Black Lives Matter in particular and also because of the global reach of the campaign the cause and of course the horrendous events um, in the US that have led to this particular, you know, resurgence, if you will. Mm. I hope that Australians in particular take it upon themselves to educate themselves. And and so a level of self-awareness and self-reflection, I think, would be amazing. And I think that there has been some positive outcomes in that space already. But it can't be a fleeting moment. It needs to be something that you, it's a lifestyle change, essentially.
1: So you've been working for yourself for several years now through both your consultancy and your not-for-profit work. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned in terms of starting or running your own business?
0: Oh, but the biggest lesson I have learned, well, actually, the biggest lesson I have learned is that people aren't always ready for you and that you have to, this is probably a life lesson as much as a business lesson. Um, you You have to meet people where they are and be patient enough for them to get there because I often find, and same with my business partner, that we're usually like 10 steps ahead of where some of the people we're trying to affect change with are. It doesn't mean that we can't continue to do that type of um learning or teaching or whatever but we need to ensure that we cover to the best still within our niche but cover the spectrum you know of the mm. learning journey and um that it will take some time for people to get on board but I tell you what when they do it can be magical so um it's what it's worth the wait and the other thing mm. that I would say is that Everything, this is going to sound so cliche, everything, <laughs> ha- everything happens for a reason because I've, I've often heard people say, oh, you know, when we didn't get that project or we didn't get that grant or that investor and it, and it was absolutely devastating. But for us, we have found in those moments when that has occurred, we have literally turned the corner and something way better is waiting for us. And mm-hmm. so in those downtrodden moments, because being a entrepreneur being a business owner particularly a female one and even more so an indigenous one or a person, people of color it seems like the no is way more prevalent than the yes however when the yes actually occurs it's epic
1: and i'm curious to know with so many ventures and projects on the go what does a typical work day look like for you now
0: i think a work day for me it looks like probably what my brain would look like if you mapped it at some point Um, because uh, for me, the common thread in everything that we do is cultural intelligence. So it just manifests in different ways. So it could be an advisory piece. It could be a zoom call or a podcast, much the same as this one. And for me, that's normal. So I could start with, you know, working on something for saltwater country and then jumping over to the cultural IQ to make sure that's ticking along. So it, it's quite, to the outsider, it may look haphazard, but to me it mm-hmm. makes complete sense. So, um, yeah. and ultimately the crux of it is delivering for our people in our community. So in whatever way that manifests, I'm quite happy to do it.
1: And so looking back on your career to date, what, what are you most proud of and what do you hope to achieve going forward?
0: The two things I'm actually probably most proud of is the establishment of Saltwater Country and of the Cultural Intelligence Project. I think that the Cultural Intelligence Project in particular has been the culmination of not only my professional career, but also my sister's professional career as my business partner, and um, the fact that despite the, you know, moments when we get turned down or whatever we've actually stayed true to our commitment to delivering for our people and for people of colour more broadly. And we just won't take no for an answer. So if you if you're thinking about saying no to us, maybe rethink that because um we're <laughs> not we're not going away. So I think our tenacity and our commitment and the integrity with which we do our work is my proudest moment. And staying true to that philosophy uh has been key for our achievements and, and um I hope that that will continue and that we will only be able to scale the offering and in doing so bring our people on the journey.
1: So we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've certainly made some big leaps in your life and career and you aren't afraid to start new ventures and innovations. So what would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for
0: it? I suppose in the beginning it was just the willingness to say yes to anything really, almost anything, Um, but also the courage to say no. So very early in my career I had the opportunity to go overseas and travel by myself. I think I was about 20 maybe, 22, I don't know, something like that. But just say I'm not easily intimidated, so I would say to anybody, forget intimidation, like back yourself. If you don't back yourself, nobody else is going to. And that was the mindset that I took. So professional opportunities, personal opportunities, um, travelling overseas was probably a defining moment for me because my mum just waved goodbye at the airport. She's like, yep, go for it. I, my family have extremely supportive in allowing me to do those types of things. And that was a formative moment for me because Not only, I mean, I was an independent person anyway, but I was living in a brand new country with people that I did not know at all, the cultural barriers and different things that I had to navigate, but in the end came out roses with a a lived experience that not many people get to have. And, um, yeah, so I would say that that was a formative moment. And then the other moment was also having worked as a professional for other organisations and then realising that I was more than capable of stepping out on my own and then also with my business partner and just taking the leap of faith to do that and doing it in a way that manifests my version of success, not what other people Mm. think is success. I could not care less, to be honest, what other people think (laughs) of success because they are not living my life and I'm not living theirs. So staying, mm-hmm. tr- staying true to that, I think, has been key and, and that's resulted in the success that we've had.
1: And you've inspired many people in your community, but who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you?
0: I kind of look to any Indigenous woman or woman of colour that has stayed true to their journey and their story. So from, you know, from my mother as probably everybody says their mum probably, but um, just somebody who is one of the strongest women that I know and that I've come across for, to, you know, this is going to also sound cliche, but to, you know, your Michelle Obamas and people like that have that have chosen their journey as well, but also to the women that are in my community that, are faced with a whole raft of barriers every day but they get up and they just keep going so I get as much inspiration from the mothers that are amongst our people the aunties that raise their nieces and nephews as if they were their sons and daughters which they are in our culture anyway but to be perfectly honest women as a collective I think are is the strongest voice and the strongest role model that anybody could have if they let us run the world, which we kind of do in a way. We probably We're getting more, there. Right? <laughs> they just don't know. They don't know that we do, but we do. <laughs> so, people like, I think as a collective is my biggest inspiration. Uh, and especially, mm. especially women of color irrespective of their, you know, their culture and where they've come from, I just think the journey that we have all had and the women that have come before me are my biggest role models and inspirations because they've had to go through a lot for me to be afforded the opportunities that I have right now. And so I Mm. therefore see it as my responsibility, almost I suppose my birthright, but my responsibility to then play my part.
1: And if there's someone listening out there who might be wanting to make a brave leap in their career, maybe they've got a big idea or they want to make a career change, do you have any final tips for them?
0: Um, I think I might have said it before, but I would just say do it. (laughs) Like back yourself, do the research, like you need to do the work and make sure that it's your version of success. Like don't listen to anybody else. If you are at a time when you are not quite ready to let go of your day job, for example, don't. Maybe freelance or go part-time or or do it after hours. You know, as we developed our business and as we were still working for other people, you know, I'd get up or or stay up late um, those extra few hours to get that piece of work done so I can balance it so there comes a tipping point. When you're willing to or you're secure enough to actually step away, because everybody has different responsibilities and um, also equally different ambitions. But there's no shame whatsoever in stepping off when you're ready. And, but I would also encourage you to take a bit of a risk and uh, what's and assess like what's holding you back. Is it a financial thing or is it actually your mindset? and do the work on that mindset to in, be encouraged by people that are around you and to take in teachings and learnings, but then also just back yourself.
1: Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Cara. It's been really interesting speaking with you.
0: Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: That was Kara Peak, co-founder of the Cultural Intelligence Project and founder of Saltwater Country, which you can find at saltwatercountry.com.au and we'll include the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at whatshedidnextpodcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening.